sometimes lately when I'm writing, I, I think, where is the hope in this piece? Because it will just feel like so much darkness. And I think that the hope comes from what people who hear a piece of art might, might do with it afterwards. And I also think in, in this current administration, and everything is a lie, that the process of you know, just telling the truth becomes a, a hopeful act in itself. That's Andrea Gibson. I'm Michael Sokol, and this is Same Wavelength, a platform where I have conversations with artists about the relationship between their creative work and our current political moment. Same Wavelength is a place where artists speak their truths. Poet and activist Andrea Gibson is my guest on this episode, the fifth episode of Same Wavelength. As I said, my name is Michael Sokol. Hello, Michael Sokol. Hey, Michael. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm a former radio DJ who wanted to start a platform where I could have open conversations with creative folks discussing social and political issues and talk with artists about how they choose to use their platforms during these divisive and scary times. I'm really struggling to make sense of what's happening in our country right now, and maybe you can relate. And one of the reasons I turn to the artists and the art that I turn to is because it makes me feel less alone. For me, talking with artists is a super useful source of energy and discovery and I'm realizing that there's so much to learn from artists about how to navigate the world during trying times. I think artists can teach us how to better connect with our history and how to better connect with one another when we're feeling disconnected and overwhelmed. Andrea Gibson is at the forefront of the spoken word movement. Their powerful poetry provides social and political commentary on gender and LGBTQI issues, mental health, gun violence, class, sexuality, race, and privilege. Andrea Gibson's most recent book is called How Poetry Can Change Your Heart. Their poetry books, Lord of the Butterflies and Take Me With You, also came out in the last couple years. Every couple of episodes of Same Wavelength, I dig back into my archives of interviews and pull one out that I find particularly relevant right now. These tend to be a little bit shorter than the other episodes. This is part of a conversation that Andrea and I had together over the phone back in the spring of 2017. Andrea and I talk about what it's like to create hope through art during urgent times. We talk about the importance of destigmatizing mental health issues and the constant necessity to be confronting our privilege. As we see racist rhetoric from the White House emboldening so many in this country to act in hateful ways, I think this conversation feels particularly relevant and useful. I also think talking about mental health is a really important part of the conversation when we talk about politics and oppression and creativity. And I think it's part of the conversation that can often get overlooked one of the reasons that I love Andrea's work is that it so vulnerably and honestly opens up that conversation. Anything that's referenced throughout the conversation, you can find all of that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. And those are there because I hope Same Wavelength can be for you, like it is for me, a place of discovery. A warning that this conversation does involve the sensitive topic of suicidality. Before we get to the conversation with Andrea, I do want to say that if you like me, are really concerned about the cruel and inhumane treatment of children and families happening right now at our southern border. There's a list of resources to check out in the show notes for this episode on the podcast website, samewavelengthpodcast.com. You'll find a list of organizations doing really important work with immigrant families, and now's a good time to read about the work that they're doing and think about how to maybe get involved in a way that makes sense for you. Here's my conversation with Andrea Gibson on Same Wavelength, and thank you so much for listening. Hi, Andrea. 
Hi, Michael. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure talking with you. I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity to have some of your time today. Thank you. Your writing to me and your poetry is so deeply uh, emotional and honest and vulnerable and tender. Uh, It's sexy. It's angry. It's heartbreaking and inclusive and liberating. How, How does the Trump administration change your job right now as an artist and an activist? Oh, wow. Well, I'm definitely writing less sexy stuff, for sure. I've actually never heard anybody say sexy, and I love that. Um, I think it is. (laughs) uh, You know, I'm writing with an urgency that I think that I've I've never written uh, with before, and Mm. it it almost feels like there's never enough minutes in the day, and... uh, and also when I'm performing, I feel like I can't, <laughs> I can't yell loud enough or I, I can't uh, peel my, my heart open enough to take all of this in and try to uh, put something out that is... Um, I used to work with a group called Vox Feminista, and their motto was to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And, um, I just have such a sense at every show now that people are, are so desperately needing uh, to be comforted um, and also, I wish there were more people at my shows that I could disturb because it's uh, sort of a wild thing to write, um, to be writing so much and have uh, n- sometimes not the right people having access to what I'm talking about because they would they would almost shut down immediately. And I'm also not willing to say things maybe in a way that they could hear right now. So it's it's all tricky. Um, but I know that every writer in my life right now is just. Um, there's just it, it feels like there's not enough time there uh, I've never had so many poems in inside of me that I'm I'm desperate to get out and then also realizing that that sense of urgency can also sort of stifle the creative process because it's it's like this pressure that builds inside of you so um yeah yeah it just feels like there's so much to do there is so much to do and um and so many different ways to do it and trying to figure out what I have to offer that's going to be uh, the most helpful right now. Yeah. I love that you referenced that quote to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. It's one that I, I definitely think about often these days. And it, yeah, it's such an interesting balance between, you know, informing or, you know, introducing new ideas to, or new concepts to, to folks, but also, um, you know, creating comfort or giving hope to, to other folks at the same time. It's a really complicated balance, I guess. Yeah, every time I'm writing, I have that in the back of my head. I also heard, and I don't know who said this, but um, I heard somebody say years ago that art has two responsibilities. One is to tell the truth, and the other is to create hope. And I think of that every time I'm writing, too. And and sometimes lately when I'm writing, I I think, where is the hope in this piece? Because uh, it will just feel like so much darkness. And um, I think that the hope comes from what people who hear a piece of art might, might do with it afterwards. And I also think in, in this current administration and our so much is <laughs> everything is a lie that um, the process of, you know, just telling the truth becomes uh, a hopeful act in itself. Yeah. And, and along those lines, I mean, there was a, there have been times in history not that long ago where revealing hypocrisy was enough, but that's no longer just the job because they're kind of flaunting hypocrisy and flaunting these lies more than they ever have. So it does, I mean, that makes your job more complicated, right? Oh yeah. It's, (laughs) 
Yeah, it is. And it's just, um, I've never, you know, truly, I wake up every day now and think, what, what is the answer here? And of course, there are so many different answers, but it's, um, yeah. Do you find your writing uh, that's, that you've been doing the last couple of months, are you finding that this urgency, I think that's such a great word that you used, um, is having to manifest itself in a, in a new direction that you haven't had to, um, it's sort of unprecedented in your career? I do. You know, uh, I, I feel on the brink of something. Like, I, I keep thinking that something brand new is going to come out of me, and, and I, I don't even know what it is yet, but I can, I can feel so much so uh, that what I have been doing is almost, um, I, I feel it's, it's time running out in terms of how crucial this time is in history and I feel uh, the call for something bigger. And I, I feel, <laughs> it sounds so, um, sort of far out there, but I feel it coming to me, and I'm not quite sure what it is. So I try, I've been trying to keep myself in a, a place of openness and wonder so that whatever is that brand-new thing, I can actually let in when it, when it gets to me. Because, um, you know, it's, it's easy to keep doing something the same way, especially, you know, I love, I love spoken word, and I, I love... Uh, I just, I love the art form so much. The other night I was doing a show with a bunch of other poets and um, it just reignited uh, for me the, the power of the art form and how it, how it moves people. And I just, I just felt nourished by it. But also um, in terms of what actually I'm, I'm speaking about and in terms of affecting real significant change, I, I feel like that's going to be something brand new for me and I'm, I'm not quite sure what that next step is. Yeah. Well, it's exciting in a way, you know, as scary as it is. Yeah, it is exciting. And then it's also, I, I wish the world was in a state where I could, you know, just be more comfortable being bored and having nothing to say, you know? <laughs> like, I would love to spend the rest of my life just writing sweet little rhyming love poems. That would be so wonderful if the world was uh, allowing for that. It doesn't seem like that's the direction we're going in or your career is going in. <laughs> No, it does not. It does not seem that way at all, unfortunately. Mm. There's this real inclusivity that I hear throughout your work, and, and I feel like you speak with such courage and honesty and warmth on behalf of people who, who otherwise you know, don't get represented very often or, or feel like they maybe aren't being heard. And, and I'm curious how you think about that in terms of your work and, and this idea of you know, speaking for others versus you know, speaking your own truth. Yeah, you know, I've heard I've heard some really creative conversations just around the idea of or you know ideas around the idea of, of speaking for people. So I don't I don't think that I ever really uh, do that. I, I speak what I'm I'm witnessing and also am aware of the the immense privilege and and being heard often um, or being heard by some people at least. And uh, yeah, it's um, when you look at the voices that need to be heard right now and if those stories were were being told and actually you know heard and responded to with empathy and compassion and um, some awareness of our our you know interconnectedness then how much how much would change and all of that being um being not heard even though it's being screamed by you know millions is uh, so much of the suffering and destruction that's happening right now. Um, but I don't, yeah, I, I don't really think I speak for people. I speak, um, but I, I try to um, be a witness and then speak what I'm, I'm witnessing. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it, I get the sense that your work saves lives. I mean, lit, I mean, I think figuratively and literally, I think um, along those lines of what you just said, I mean, you really do comfort so many people. And I'm, I, I know that you're, you're probably aware of that. Um, I think that, um, thank you for, thank you for saying that. And, uh, I, I think so many of us have been saved by art and, um, and sort of, you know, we see ourselves in it. I remember the first time I started seeing, I think it was like Ani DeFranco, you know, when I was young and, and being able to see myself in, in an artist um, just brought so much uh, comfort to me to be represented somewhere. And um, in terms of saving lives, yeah, I, I, I think that we're all um, doing that for each other, hopefully all the time. And I also know that... Uh, talk to so many people at my shows that uh, I feel like they're, you know, we're all just sort of in the room holding each other up. And um, it's one of the, just the sweetest spaces for me because I meet so many people at my shows that are experiencing similar things. And if I'm having a, an awful day and it feels hard to get on stage, um, every time I get on stage, I, I realize how much I, I get from it. I never leave a performance more exhausted than when I started. I always feel, I always have more energy after because an audience gives so much. And that's one of the sweet things about spoken word, I think, is that it's an art form where you're actually like looking people in the eye when you're talking. You know, we mm. typically memorize my poems and then I get to look people in the eye when I'm, when I'm reading them and it feels like a conversation. And I don't know if the audience always knows how much uh, they're speaking back. You know, you just Sort of feeling each other, and um, I definitely feel held and held by it, and I feel like it it saves my life for sure. So I hope it's doing something like that in return. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about um, your work with the uh, support system? Stay here with me because I think that's relevant to what we're talking about. Yeah, so stay, stay here with me is a project that I started with uh, Kelsey Gibb uh, many years ago. So basically, uh, I started reading a poem at a lot of my shows uh, called The Nutritionist, and it was. Uh, a poem that was the first poem I really ever wrote about uh, suicidality and struggling to stay alive. And uh, that was when I started having really long conversations with folks after shows and realizing how, how much this wasn't being talked about, um, mental health and, and mental illness, and um, how much shame went into it. And, you know, I'd been writing for years and hadn't directly spoken to what my life experience was um, in terms of that. And so... After those conversations, Kels and I started a project where uh, it was basically an online resource and encouraging, uh, you know, people to stay alive and in support supporting each other in staying alive and wanting to stay alive. And um, and we figured out in the process of that that so much uh, so much of it is just reminding reminding each other that we're not alone. And I don't know why that's so comforting. You would think that to know somebody else is hurting too. Uh, you know, wouldn't comfort you, but it does. To, uh, there's something that is so excruciating about loneliness. I actually heard once that loneliness resonates in the same part of the brain as physical pain. Mm. Um, so just the reminder that other people are experiencing something similar to you could be the one thing that could uh, to carry you through the day, and that's what that project is about. Do you think part of why maybe it's so comforting is because, for I mean, there is such a stigma of, of surrounding um, mental health and, and I mean, 
and that when we do get to talk about it and have open communication, it feels like such a relief because it's we suppress it, and that's kind of what our society does with these things. Um, oh yeah. So that when yeah, there when there is a chance for an open dialogue, which you so brilliantly do, you know, through your work, it is this like huge <laughs> exhale. I think. Yeah. So much so. There's so much silence around it. And, you know, I have a, I've been performing for so many years now, and I get stage fright every time I'm on stage. And sometimes I'll ask the audience to raise their hand if they, too, are, you know, feeling anxious. And when 50 hands go up in the audience, I and mean, just, just even knowing that, I immediately, immediately calm down. And one of the things, uh, when it used to be really difficult for me to get on stage, uh, my therapist, I never go a day without quoting my therapist, but my <laughs> therapist, um, said it might get a little easier if I was willing to walk on stage and just tell people everything I was feeling. So if my hands were shaking, just say my hands are shaking. Or if I had cried all day, just say I cried all day. And just the telling, <laughs> being honest about that just calmed me down so much and soothed me. And I realized how much of our our suffering is about trying to act like we're not suffering or trying to... Uh, yeah, just being lonely in that whole experience. Well, I so appreciate your courage um, and your willingness to allow yourself to be so vulnerable. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for saying that. Let's take a listen to you performing a part of that poem, The Nutritionist. Yeah. The nutritionist said I should eat root vegetables. Said if I could get down 13 turnips a day, I would be grounded, rooted. Said my head would not keep flying away to where the darkness lives. The psychic told me my heart carries too much weight. So for $20, she'd tell me what to do. I handed her the 20. She said, stop worrying, darling. You will find a good man soon. The first psychotherapist said I should spend three hours a day sitting in a dark closet with my eyes closed and my ears plugged. I tried it once, but couldn't stop thinking about how gay it was to be sitting in the closet. The yogi told me, to stretch everything but the truth, said to focus on the out-breath, said everyone finds happiness if they can care more about what they give than what they get. The pharmacist said Kalanapin, Lamictal, Lithium, Xanax, a doctor said an antipsychotic might help me forget what the trauma said. The trauma said, don't write this poem. Nobody wants to hear you cry about the grief inside your bones. But my bones said, Tyler Clemente dove into the Hudson River convinced he was entirely alone. My bones said, write the poem to the lamplight, considering the riverbed, to the chandelier of your faith, hanging by a thread, to every day you cannot get out of bed, to the bullseye of your wrist, to anyone who has ever wanted to die. I have been told sometimes the most healing thing we can do is remind ourselves over and over and over, other people feel this too. The tomorrow that has come and gone and it has not gotten better. When you are half finished writing that letter to your mother that says, I swear to God, I tried. But when I thought I'd hit bottom, it started hitting back. There is no bruise. Like the bruise, loneliness kicks into the spine. So let me tell you, I know there were days when it looks like the whole world is dancing in the streets where you break down like the doors of their looting buildings you are not alone and wondering who will be convicted of the crime of insisting you keep loading your grief into the chamber of your shame you are not weak just because your heart feels so heavy I have never met a heavy heart there wasn't a phone booth with a red cape inside some people will never understand the kind of superpower it takes for some people to just walk outside some days I know my smile looks like a gutter on a falling house but my hands are always holding tight to the ripcord of believing a life can be 
rich like the soil, can make food of decay, turn wound into highway, pick me up in a truck with that bumper sticker that says it is no measure of good health to be well adjusted to a sick society. I have never. You know, I had gone a few shows without sharing that poem, and then I read it the other night, and I usually, uh, I usually. You read it. It's it's one piece that I always feel like I'm reading for people. And the other day, I was having a hard time, and I actually read it for myself on stage, which I don't think I'd ever done before. And it was sort of comforting to be comforted by my own poem. Well, I think it's powerful that you're able to comfort yourself with your own work. I think that is <laughs> is pretty incredible. Silly saying that, but it's true. It's, it's true. not I silly at all. Trust me. I, I mean, I I experienced that as a songwriter. That like things you know, not even in the moment, but you go back and, and you find these things that you said maybe a year or two ago and it's you find them to be even more relevant in that moment and, and comforting. And I, I think that's beautiful. Well, sometimes when my friends are having a hard time, I'll, I'll, I'll quote my poems and I'll say, well, you know, the poet Andrea Gibson says, and if, if they're having a horrible day, they'll be, they'll, they'll think I'm so ridiculous that it will cheer up their day when I start quoting myself. To them, so, <laughs> I love <you>. that. <laughs> Andrea, I think the last thing I want to ask you about is uh, a post you made on your Facebook page back in 2014 after Michael Brown was fatally shot in Ferguson. Can we? Do you have a few minutes to talk about that? Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. Um, I think that that post so honestly addresses so many things that feel necessary and vital for uh, us as white people to be talking about and addressing. Yeah. I want to read a few lines from that, and then uh, we can talk about it. Yeah. To the white people in my Facebook community, Michael Brown was murdered by a hateful system designed to murder the bodies, hearts, and spirits of people of color. His mother is weeping in our streets. I promise I say this with care for your good heart. If you feel no grief, a murderous system owns your humanity. If your sympathies lean towards Darren Wilson... A murderous system owns your humanity. If the word looting is inclined to come out of your mouth more often than the words, another black man was murdered, a murderous system owns your humanity. It is a horrific thing to acknowledge and appalling to admit, but if you are white in this country, it is likely that you have to learn how to grieve the death of a black man. You have to learn how to grieve the death of a black man. Mm. Um... I feel strange thanking you for those words, but um, I really do think it addresses the situation from the perspective of our white privilege with such uh, an honest lens. And I so appreciate your courage to, to say those necessary words. Yeah, I don't know. Do you yeah, want well, in terms of being thanked for that piece, uh, it's, it's just, I think uh, any time, you know, whenever I read a, a poem about, you know, dismantling white privilege or white supremacy it it always feels uh, like sort of an awful experience to have it be uh to be applauded for because it's just the basic i mean the call for white people to be saying that stuff right now and to be active is is uh so important and to not be doing that is just um it just feels hateful yeah <laughs> honestly um and and murderous and so yeah and that that piece certainly brought the truth out of the wo- uh, the woodwork because thousands of folks commented and <clears throat> excuse me and, and so many of the comments were were so awful and it was startling because a lot of the comments that were awful were uh, also comments by you know probably liberal identified white people and um and then i and it it just woke me up further reading some of the comments because 
you know, some of the really disgusting stuff uh, I I expected, but but the fact of how many, you know, for example, white queer people were on there saying stuff that was just awful was uh, sort of ignited me to just get louder about it all. Yeah, maybe that you just answered it, but I mean, how do you combat that hate? Is it by speaking louder and more often? I think it's thinking of every single thing that you could every single thing that you could be doing uh, right now and to always have your lens on it constantly and and when your lens isn't on it to to note the privilege in that and to uh yeah just to constantly be inspecting um how destructive apathy is and ignoring and and turning your head and and not just a, a matter of um it just requires so much activism and so much doing right now to combat the the hurt that's being done. Yeah, maybe we'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much. It's such an honor to talk to you. And, uh, thank great. you so much. Um, thank you for your questions. They were great. Thank you so much for your answers. I really appreciate it. All right. A big thank you to Andrea for their time and interest in this project. Anything that was discussed throughout the conversation, you can find all of that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. There you'll also find links to Andrea's books and some videos of their performances. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do that. And if you can rate it, review it, and share it, that would be amazing. That really helps me reach more folks and get the word out about Same Wavelength. Make sure you're following the podcast on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. It's Same Wavelength Podcast. On Twitter, Same Wave Pod. This conversation was edited for brevity and clarity, though I made a sincere effort to retain Andrea's ideas and words in their most honest form. Thank you to Andrea's management for their interest in this project and for letting me include this conversation as part of the podcast. Thank you to Button Poetry for letting me use an excerpt of the recording of Andrea's performance of The Nutritionist. Button Poetry is the amazing publisher who put out Andrea's book, Lord of the Butterflies. You can find info on Button Poetry in the show notes. The theme music that you're hearing right now and that you heard at the beginning of this episode is an instrumental version of a song by my band, Bunk, called Turn the World Around. You also heard part of an instrumental version of our song, The Story of My Morals, at the beginning of this episode as well. Thank you to my bandmates, Brett and Dave, for being cool with me using these songs for the podcast. On the next episode of Same Wavelength... Alinda Sagara from Hooray for the Riffraff. Puerto Rican artists are very important. Puerto Rican poets are very important. And, you know, there's a history of, because the island has never gotten its independence, there's this idea of the artwork and the poetry and the music really being like, this is our declaration of independence. You know, like our artwork and our poetry will last far beyond us. Our children will hear it or read it or experience it and they can become a part of it and they can keep it going and it'll enforce a sense of identity. I'm Michael Sokol. Thank you so much for listening to Same Wavelength. Be good to yourself and be good to those around you. 